welcome to another episode of Goldwater Scholar Highlights, where we interview notable Goldwater scholars and honorable mentions on their educational backgrounds, their current research, and their different career experiences. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a great way to learn from the science and career expertise of others in the Goldwater Scholar community. This podcast is available on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, and Spotify, and you can receive notifications of new episodes by following the Goldwater Scholar community on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. You can also leave us feedback on these social media sites. You can leave comments about what questions you want answered, what different topics you want explored, or you can just go on there and tell us what a great job we're doing. All right, jokes aside, the guest that we have on today graduated with his PhD in 2013 from NYU in computational biology. He is now a principal scientist working at a company called Applied Biomath, working to develop software and tools for assisting in drug development and discovery. This is Andrew Madison. Hi, well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, as you said, uh, I got my PhD in 2013 from New York University. Uh, I was associated with both the math department and the computational biology department there. Uh, my advisor was Charlie Peskin. Um, and while there, uh, I worked on um, understanding the theory of mathematical optimization for um, uh, systems biology models. Uh, so I work with uh, ordinary differential equations as they are applied to uh, understanding of biology um, at quite a few different levels. I take systems approaches to try to understand um, problems in drug development. Um, and then over time, I've developed interest in software engineering and supporting tool development um, to enable uh, all sorts of people to work with these kind of tools and techniques more easily. So thank you for having me on. We're happy to have you. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Can you tell us a bit about what systems optimization is and what that sort of means? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I start out with differential equations, um, generally ordinary differential equations. So I am expressing uh, as uh, kind of their rate of evolution in time, um, concentrations of various chemical species. And those chemical species might be intracellular, they might be numbers of cells, they might be um, distributed across uh, the entire body. And so I try to write models that couple multiple levels of, of scale. So anything from this is the concentration of uh, a drug in the blood plasma um, down to this is the particular mechanisms of how that uh, drug is interacting with a particular cell and the mechanisms by which it is internalized. And picking the appropriate level of detail at every level of this system um, really drives being able to fit, identify fit-for-purpose mechanistic models um, that you can then use to make all sorts of decisions about um, the drug development process. So for instance, um, drug development runs, uh, it begins some uh, most frequently with target identification. So you are picking something that you want to build a drug uh, to go after. Um, one of the key questions that you have at that time is, well, how much drug am I going to estimate that I need 
to use to completely cover this target in some sort of way that I hypothesize that this modulates a disease. Um, so one of the things that you might work on that uh, is uh, to work on that is figure out well how much a target uh, of a target is there, how quickly is it turning over, and then use these kinds of models to identify well how much drug does that suggest that I am going to need. When getting into kind of the optimization theory of this, um, you generally cannot directly measure the parameters that you that, that are most informative for your model. You can only measure. Um, Kind of other things like the concentration of drug after you run a particular experiment. So what you want to do is once you compose your model and you want to then uh, identify the parameters that um, you don't know in your model by comparing the predictions of the model to data and iteratively adjusting these parameters. And there's a whole field of optimization theory for how you might go about doing that. So um, I guess so just to make sure I'm following you. So uh, for example, if you thought you were targeting uh, the mitochondria in every somatic cell of a patient, mm -hmm. you might develop a model in which the drug binds to the mitochondria in a one-to-one -one stoichiometry. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one of the assumptions of that model. And based on the measurement of the drug after of the drug and maybe some other chemical species after dosage. Mm -hmm test out your model? Conceptually, that's the right idea. Uh, most of the time, the, the drugs I'm working on uh, are large molecules. So generally, they are um, engineered uh, monoclonal antibodies or other kind of protein-based therapeutics. Um, and so we're generally operating uh, up to the level of the surface of the cell. Uh, and, and then more rarely are we doing something inside the cell. Um, now there's a whole, a whole new classes of drugs being invented every day. Um, and so something like an antibody drug conjugate, where you have a large molecule that binds to the cell and then when, once that molecule is internalized um, and digested, that it releases a payload inside the cell. And so we do modeling on those um, uh, drugs with complex mechanisms quite often. So what other sort of systems do you work with besides antibody drug conjugates? Um, so monoclonal antibodies, antibody drug conjugates, anything with um, kind of a non-typical pharmacology. So um, I've worked on uh, liposomal drugs. Um, uh, so these are uh, engineered kind of uh, pockets uh, around uh, around a drug payload, and there's conditions on which um, where where in the in the body or or where at the disease site. Uh, that these uh, th these liposomes or nanoliposomes will open um, and, and release their payload. Um, we frequently work with uh, bispecific or multi-specific molecules, um, uh, particularly when you're starting to see uh, more complex mechanisms for bispecifics, like bispecific T cell engagers, where you have a single protein spanning two cells, um, and try and the mechanism of the drug is is engaging. Um, one cell and another to be close to each other uh, and promoting that activity. Um, you see uh, an awful lot of work with immunomodulation um, and trying to understand uh, kind of when immunomod immunomodulation is effective. 
On the small molecule side, I work with things, um, I've worked with uh, small molecules with things uh, that have uh, something called like non-stationary pharmacology. Um, so if the uh, mechanisms by which a drug acts uh, make the um, pharmacology of the drug different if you take the drug in the morning and the evening, and you need to understand how to optimize dose for this kind of much more complicated case, that's a case where we might um, uh, kind of uh, more easily go in and, and, and engage with a client um, who has problems they don't know how to solve with a more standard toolkit. Um, you know, I would, it applied biomath is about 30 people. Um, most people uh, that work at the company have PhDs. Um, and we're generally trying to take the hardest problems. Um, and, and so for, for a lot of time, we can do the, the easier problems. Uh, but most of the time, we're being hired to work on um, things where we're addressing uh, really hard mechanisms, kind of significant unknowns on a short timeline um, with, uh, with with lots of stakeholders, like really depending on the outcome. Wow. So what what is the average timeline for uh, one sort of project that your team works on? Uh, so it really depends on the complexity of the milestones. Um, so if we are getting a kind of project where um, uh, somebody needs uh, the best answer we can get uh, in the next 30 days, um, we can have a project timeline that's extremely short. Um, if you're looking at something where uh, a, a client wants to build um, a large platform model upon which they're going to base multiple drugs within um, uh, you know, an, an entire disease area and they're starting, you know, a major initiative, um, in a, in a new area, we might spend several months or uh, up to a year, uh, building a model with, 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 you know, a dozen in, intermediate milestones where we're delivering incremental value, uh, before we get to the final thing. Wow. It sounds like quite a range of drugs and quite a range of different projects. So, so we work throughout the pipeline. Um, so everywhere from uh, target identification, you know, you know, 10 to 20 years before a drug actually gets approved. Um, you know, there's a, there's a huge range of how long it takes to do drug development. Um, and then we work through uh, target identification to, um, you know, helping you define how you're going to uh, do lead selection, like how you identify uh, once you have something that's binding to this target or, or, or modulating it, how do you define your uh, strategy for enriching like with the molecules that you have for, for drug-like properties or, or properties that will make this best in class? How do you know when you are good enough uh, with this drug? And then at every stage beyond that where you're um, designing experiments, you're engaging with regulators, um, and then transitioning into uh, like early stage clinical assets where you're starting to um, you know, demonstrate that you have the appropriateness of your, of your molecule for going into humans. Uh, and then all of the stages of clinical trials where you're making tons of decisions about what group of patients you're going into. Do you have a biomarker strategy? What is that biomarker strategy? Um, how are you uh, protecting patients, how are you going up to the right dosages, 
um, all the way through uh, kind of clinical monitoring and, and um, determining, uh, you know, safety and efficacy and characterizing your compound during clinical trials. Like we worked throughout that entire pipeline. And there's dramatically different constraints at every point in there. Wow. So how many projects do you typically work with at a time? Is it is, is it usually one project pretty narrowly focused for a time period or are you, are you always juggling 10 different things? Um, so uh, I personally uh, don't work directly with clients all that much anymore. Um, uh, that may change the next couple of years. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed that work in the past and might go back to it. Um, for people that are client facing within our organization, um, there's uh, a few projects at a time that people are, are juggling. Most frequently, the, the, the way in which that juggling happens is um, we will get to a milestone and then that milestone defines an experiment that uh, a client, that, that we're recommending that a client perform. And then that client will need to go and perform that experiment and gather the data back and that data that comes back will inform the next stage of our, of our work. Um, but until that data comes back, uh, we have to put things on hold um, because you know there's no further modeling work to be done. And so we'll shift gears for for weeks, or you know if, if, if delays happen, like that can be longer. Um, but we'll put something on pause and go work on a different uh, project uh, that has recently come back with data. And the hope is that. Uh, everything's being juggled in the right way, and and you're we're working in team environments. So if somebody, so so if like a lot of projects come back all at once, hopefully your kind of you know lab notebooks and documentation and software are in a good enough shape that you can pass that on to uh, a team member who who can take over and step in if your workload gets too high too quickly. Sounds very dynamic. Um, so. Let's uh, let's uh, go back to your PhD and what you kind of learned and what your um, science was at was like in your PhD and how you kind of transitioned in your career to where you are now. Yeah. So um, I suspected that I was going to want to engage with industry in some capacity really early on in my dissertation. I really early on in my work. Um, and uh, the way NYU's program, uh, particularly its math department, is, is constructed is it really encourages engaging with companies um, and going to do internships during the summer. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that comes with uh, from, from NYU's background and connection to, to finance. And so like a lot of my peers were going and doing finance internships, um, or rather my peers in the math department were going and doing that. Um, and so I, what I did was, you know, I went through the literature and found kind of the groups in the industry that I thought uh, were doing computational biology in an interesting way and, and, and the right way. Um, and I cold called these companies um, and asked, you know, what, how can I get involved? How can I connect? Um, and one of them, Merrimack Pharmaceuticals, um, I, I, I clicked with and in 2009, uh, I went and spent my summer in Boston uh, working with this company. I really enjoyed the kind of work that I was doing there. Um, so I was pretty comfortable with you going ahead and doing that. Did you kind of have to talk to your PI beforehand or? 
Uh, I certainly cleared this with my PI and kind of talked about strategy and so on. Um, but uh, I was given, uh, for, for better or for worse, quite a quite a bit of autonomy uh, within within my uh, doctoral program. Um, the nice thing about being um, a mathematician is I'm less tied to you know a lab. Uh, you know, if I have a, a notebook of paper and and you know I needed a computer. Uh, I could do my work uh, just about anywhere, um, and uh, this was kind of an enriching and educational experience that really aligned well with me identifying what I wanted to do in in this research field. Um, so, uh, at that time, I ended up starting uh, to support an oncology program, and I was working on um, understanding. Um, uh, two receptor tyrosine kinases. Um, so we had a model of um, EGFR. We wanted a model of uh, CMET um, that had kind of a similar uh, a similar data that we needed to capture. What uh, is this EGFR and CMET? Are those programs? Uh, so, so EGFR and CMET are receptor tyrosine kinases. So these are these are a common um, Kind of class of receptors that exist on the surface of, of cells. They are a common target for um, upregulation uh, in in oncology, um, and and at the time we were really interested in um, kind of this this hourglass signaling mechanism. So we we were looking at like so there's lots of different receptor tyrosine kinases. Uh, they're all focusing on uh, phospho-ERK, phospho-AKT, and a couple of other um, molecules that are that are central to to signaling. And so, what I needed to do was come in and build a systems biology model of of CMET and the EGFR, um, and identify uh, kind of where the, the the parameters weren't working in this model because other people have attempted this in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I really uh, enjoyed about this was I was working on like lots of different algorithms to get this to converge. It wasn't converging. Like I was just kind of stalled for a long time. Um, and where I, the, the moment that like really excited me was when I realized how to pivot my understanding and how I was looking at the system uh, and isolate a particular part of the model and identify what had been misparameterized because everything was um, so the model wasn't responsive to doses of a, uh, of, of HGF, the the molecule that um, stimulates cement by its canonical binding partner. The model wasn't responsive to different doses, and so it was always sending the AKT signal onto the same thing. And so, like figuring out like where in the model I had to tease apart uh, these parameters. Uh, was something that just excited me so much, um, and, uh, and and then from and, and once I teased that one issue apart, then everything kind of fell in, in, into place using standard techniques. Um, and I was really excited by uh, just developing my intuition about nonlinear systems. So um, uh, biology is is nonlinear and um, Turns out there's lots and lots of places where kind of the mathematics of like how do you think about nonlinear systems um, is it, it just starts cropping up and I realized like I, I just love that kind of thinking.
Um, and so I kind of came back to school and I'm like, okay, I'm really interested in this. Um, I kept a consulting relationship uh, going on. So I was working like about five, five hours, maybe a little bit more a week um, uh, for Merrimack Pharmaceuticals as a consultant during this, this coming year, during chunks of the year. Okay. So it was so you were working full time that first summer internship, and then you just continued in five hours part time dur during your actual dissertation. Yeah, uh, this is this is where I was given an awful lot of autonomy, and that might not have been the healthiest of decisions. Um, so I, I ended up uh, kind of continuing to, to stay connected to the pharmaceutical world and um, kind of develop my skills there and continue to support this team with different questions they had. Um, I, while also figuring out kind of what I wanted to do with my doctorate. I was still at that point thinking that I was going to go um, into some sort of fluid, fluid dynamics, kind of work on uh, things connected to, to to my advisor's kind of main wheelhouse, and that was um, uh, immersed uh, immersed uh, boundaries with kind of mechanical properties with embedded within a fluid. And so I was looking for biological problems that kind of fit into this framework and will also allow me to develop novel numerical methods for mathematics. Um, but I ended up um, kind of wanting to go back to this mathematics and so I took another summer to do another internship at the same place um, and it's it was during that summer where I realized like I really don't want to go into the fluid dynamics kind of world I want to figure out how to do kind of this optimization theory and systems biology um, and uh, really thought at that point uh, that I was going to have to start over somewhere else that I was going to have to leave with a master's or um, that, that I hit some sort of end of the road uh, on, on on my dissertation because this was um, th th this was not kind of widely studied. My interests were not widely mapped onto at, at NYU, and certainly not with my PI who I was working closely with. Um, and I wrote this letter to my my PI, kind of explaining my goals and desires and so on. Um, and he wrote back um, in in a really kind and supportive way, uh, and and you know figured out how to keep me in the program. Um, so you don't lose this time. Uh, he would support me um, kind of logistically and, and at, at school, uh, kind of help me get through the, the various aspects of being in the department. Um, but, uh, you know, he handed me the responsibility to go out and find um, kind of the scientific expertise that I needed. So you were actually interested in continuing to gain expertise in industry and your PI was very supportive of this, and you actually continued your PhD along the way of working with this company. That's really cool. I've actually never heard of any sort of PhD uh, experiences going in that sort of way. Uh, that is a succinct way of putting it, but yes. Um, uh, so uh, I would not recommend this as, as a way to uh, to go about getting your PhD or doing your research or, or things like that, but um, it is it is the way that presented itself to me. Um, and while it added quite a bit of difficulty to my just getting my doctorate, um, it was um, 
it was something that has has since shaped a lot of the way that I engage with this and has been a real asset uh, later on. Um, so uh, it was around this time um, that I started to get more interest in um, building tools. Um, so uh, I, uh, you know, there's there, there's two things that like fortuitously happened at the same time. Um, and uh, one of them was I kind of developed this kind of hobbyist interest in creating iPhone apps. Um, so this was in the days of the iPhone 3 and 4. Um, and, you know, you were required to write Objective-C in order to embed apps. Um, and I started kind of going back to low-level programming and trying to understand um, a lot of uh, the concepts that I, I, that I set aside. Um, because I was focused on more pure mathematics and, and, and kind of uh, theory and really had set aside a lot of programming um, and, and hadn't emphasized that um, uh, during, during my undergrad. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as clear in the early 2000s uh, when, I was, when, when I was getting my undergraduate degree, um, the role that uh programming and computers was going to have in all aspects of uh, of mathematics and science and everything that you want to do um, and so um you know now is it you know i give the advice of like well you need to know how to program and like do non-routine tasks on a computer and you know work with lots of different languages everybody looks at me and says well yes that's completely obvious um, but it wasn't obvious at the time. Um, and so I was picking up, picking back up uh, a lot of things with this motivation of writing iPhone apps. Um, and, you know, along the way realized like, oh, I might be able to use these same skills for, uh, my, my thesis. Um, and so one of the problems I was having was, was at the time, um, uh, the frameworks to solve ODEs, uh, ordinary differential equations, uh, that were closely tied to biology, um, they they weren't good solvers. Uh, that they they the frameworks had a lot of problems. They were incredibly slow. Um, so the framework I was using most at this at this time was SimBiology. It is a MathWorks project. Uh, a MathWorks toolbox, um, and uh, what I ended up doing was I kind of took a month and a half um, and learned how to write a um, a an ODE solver in C, uh, or, or, or rather, I interfaced with um, uh, with, with a well-known library, um, CVODES. Uh, this is uh, this is something common. Uh, it's released by the national laboratories, um, and it was much faster at solving my system of equations. And so along the way, um, I had written a model that takes SimBiology as a domain-specific language and compiles it into um, a uh, kind of collection of files and, and a library that would solve the system for certain parameter values. I integrated that with uh, MATLAB that had all the optimization solvers uh, and was able to get much further with, um, 
with this problem and solution and 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 was able to simulate uh, was able to simulate on much larger clusters and so um, at that time, uh, I kind of started talking about this with Merrimack and kind of showing this project and, and was able to leverage this on a couple of different um, problems that Merrimack was having, kind of continue to support my team there. And um, we, at, at one point, um, had a relationship with MathWorks at, at Merrimack and we wanted to um, kind of use uh, the work I'd done to um, uh, negotiate down on, on, on the price of, of some resources that we were that we were getting from them and and so that is how I ended up on the mathworks radar of you know okay this student has you know implemented a, a, a framework um, that that solves the same simulation problems or, or rather a special case of it uh, orders of magnitude faster. So I, I, I think at the time it was like 20 times faster, um, and I could and I could put it on a, a cluster um, and and run it on a larger number of processes. Um, and so uh, this this got me on the MathWorks radar, and as I ended up wrapping up my dissertation, um, uh, I. I became aware that MathWorks was hiring uh, for, for for somebody on this team, um, and so I worked with the symbiology team at MathWorks to identify, you know, was I going to be a good fit, and uh, and and I was, and so uh, there were a couple of chapters of my thesis um, that you know I had academic solutions for um, for for how how they worked. Um, and uh, moving kind of a product or a tool from an academic solution to a kind of commercial product um, takes a lot of work. Uh, there's there's a lot of refining and a lot of ways it needs to work much more. So I came I came to MathWorks with the intention of implementing um, a couple of chapters of my thesis in kind of a, a commercial way. So I can continue talking about my career from there, uh, but do you have any questions on on kind of this this academic career? No, it's it's just it's just very surprising and interesting. I, I've just never heard of uh, anyone transitioning to industry this, in this sort of way in which they're actually using what they did in the thesis um, later on. Um, I haven't either. <laughs> it, uh, uh, I think. I, I think there's certainly people who have invented experimental techniques um, that have then kind of carried over to those, carried over those applications. I have some friends that have done some work in kind of novel approaches for mass spectrometry, um, and then have you know been been hired by the large mass spec companies or startups working on kind of miniaturization of mass spec. Um, and uh, those—that's uh, the closest thing to kind of the narrative that I think I've walked. Um, so, uh, at MathWorks, um, kind of, uh, I kind of got out of the academic uh, world and immediately realized that uh, academic software development. 
uh, for the most part, doesn't teach you a lot of the really important um, techniques and habits um, that you need to have to work in a commercial environment. Um, so it is you know, outside of uh, potentially just a computer science department. Um, I find that most people that are doing programming um, don't know what unit tests are, don't know how to define a testing strategy, um, don't know uh, how to work on large distributed teams. Um, so you, you, you get through your dissertation by being really good at like knowing everything about one thing. Um, and then you move into an environment, uh, particularly an enterprise environment like MathWorks, and your thing, your what your the features you're working on are extremely small in light of everything else. And you have to understand what does your thing need to do in order to fit in with lots of other moving pieces. Mm-hmm. And so that that kind of comes with kind of constraints on what are what are the social processes uh, how do you negotiate how do you build support for your the, the features that you want to to execute on how do you build alliances um, if you want to kind of work on um, you know something that's really interesting to you how do you kind of get people on board and excited about what you want to do um, and those are things that um, but I certainly didn't have from my, my time in academia. Um, and so it was, was immediately learning, you know, okay, how do I, how do I manage all of these software development practices that are expected of me? How do I manage all of the social processes that, um, I need to understand in order to, um, kind of get my interests across the line? Um, and you know, along the way, I contributed to the symbiology toolbox. I got interested in uh, machine learning at this time. Um, uh, you know, around 2013, um, you know, this was within uh, a year or two of um, you know the the massive online course offered by Andrew Ng through. Um, through the through the the Stanford tool, the, the Coursera, um, and so I jumped on kind of one of the first classes of that um, to to kind of start getting more experience with machine learning, um, and then tried to identify problems that MathWorks might be able to increase its machine learning offerings that were also aligned with my interest in biology, and so along the way I found this problem K-mutoids. Um, so if anybody's ex- experience with k-means, uh, that's a common unsupervised clustering algorithm uh, that's that's taught in most kind of intro to machine learning uh, project uh, tasks, uh, rather classes. Um, and the k-mutoids problem is a variation on that problem that is much harder. Um, and so. At MathWorks, I started trying to implement the existing algorithms and also try to improve it. Um, and uh, then found that I really enjoyed machine learning. And uh, I ended up acquiring a couple of patents related to unsupervised learning while at MathWorks um, in my two years there. Um, 
and then I went on to uh, uh, kind of contribute at the, in the statistics and machine learning toolboxes. The, um, the, there's a finance data tools where I did some business development and like connecting people. Um, I did uh, kind of lots of work on symbiology and the bioinformatics toolboxes. And it was this kind of package that kind of really broadened my understanding of engineering and particularly systems engineering for um, scientific development um, and managed to implement the, the chapters of my thesis in, in kind of commercial ways. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, it seems, seems like a just a really neat way to transition into the, the area that you were interested in from your academic path and gain all these new skills while providing value to these companies through your ideas. It was, it was a good fit for me to start off with. Um, uh, one of the things that MathWorks taught me is that uh, my interest really lies at the intersection of engineering and science. Um, so. I like building tools to support scientists uh, to do new science. Um, at MathWorks, um, they are very much an engineering company. Um, so uh, their biggest products, like uh, are primarily around, are primarily around. Um, you know, okay, we're going to write out a block diagram that is a model of every component of a car or a plane and then we're going to automatically generate source code and now the thing about like doing uh, automotive or aeronautical engineering is you don't want things to change fast or surprisingly um, and so they have a really intense focus on kind of having a predictable march of features and so there was like multi-year plans about like how we were going to build these things and um, and it was so far over onto the engineering side where I was quite disjoint from like seeing what my users needed to do and kind of, uh, I lost that drive and connection to what was exciting me there. So was it too theoretical or not theoretical enough? Mm -hmm. So the, when a user who was a scientist came to me with a problem, um, that problem I wanted to go and support and solve right now. I wanted to build the tool that solves that problem right now. Um, but the process of getting a new feature into MATLAB um, was, was quite extensive. And so it might be years before I might be able to get back to that scientist and say, hey, does this solve your problem? Um, that very long cycle is is developed by, um, you know, some of MathWorks being a more legacy company, and some of it uh, like being driven by the constraints of their largest customers, um, and uh, that was something that was that was challenging to me. So I wanted I wanted to like be iterating between the engineering and the science more quickly. Um, so I would love to be able to go take a week to develop a thing that I then hand to somebody. Um, and so uh, I got the opportunity to connect with with two people that I really wanted to work with, um, John Burke and Josh Apgar, uh, the CEO and the CSO, uh, Chief Scientific Officer of Applied Biomath. Uh, I ran into them at a conference and they were hiring at that time. 
And so I became, I think, the third employee uh, and the first full-time employee at Applied Biomath. This is where kind of coming back to my time at Merrimack uh, was an incredible asset because I would not have been able to do what I had done had I not spent the substantial chunk of time in uh, in both grad school and you know a job at Merrimack um, because being exposed to all of the aspects of of drug development, just understanding the language, the abbreviations, the uh, the steps in the process. Um, uh, you know, what is lead identification? What comes after target identification? What is um, what is the clinical trials process? Like all of those things ended up being um, information that was really important for me to know once I ended up getting this job that I didn't realize that I was interested in until years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I spent about a year doing consulting work um, before we got a grant to um, build out a software platform. Um, you know, I was interested in kind of building out uh, our software tools internally uh, to support our science. And so, uh, so we now have an internal software team and we develop tools that help drive efficiencies on our uh, on our services side um, and um, uh, and that is a really nice exciting place to be because i can see the problems that my colleagues are having every day like right across the aisle from me and in, in, in you know the little cubicles that we have and um and identify like, okay, how can I fix the problem that you're having, or how can I make your life easier? And then we go through and like, figure out, okay, how, what is what is the critical feature here? And um, you know, after building out like large chunks of of the tools that we have, those tools now uh, is easier to iterate on and like see people like have a, a really great effect to 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 their day. Um, um, and, and how we make things easier. So that's really exciting. Um, so what was Applied Biomath kind of like when you joined up with them? Was it a young company? Was it, were they, did they have a lot of people working there? So we started, so I think the company started about a year, year and a half before I joined. Um, and so a lot of what they were doing at that time was just trying to um, like prove that they could get a company. So, so pharmaceuticals and biotech are extremely conservative in developing new business pro- processes or, de- or developing relationships with new partners. And so like getting kind of the first contract is, is really hard. And then you have to have the first contract that then people talk about, well, like, yes, we partnered with Applied Biomath. And then you start having kind of a of an increasing number of people that are interested in working with you because well they they their friends worked with you or they worked with you at a previous company and so like building that snowball took a long time. Um, and then I I was hired and it was already picking up faster than like we could really handle. <laughs> um, and so uh, you know in the next few months we hired another couple of people. Um, and uh, and then in the following year, we had a huge explosion of hiring. Um, and uh, then then we had all of these people that were really junior in their positions, and like the experienced people were like 
too, too stretched too thin. And then finally, we were able to kind of digest that hiring and everybody has, has, has grown their own efficiencies over time. And so we've steadily hired since then. I was about a year in when I transitioned to working on more software tooling and trying to help people um, through like increasing that kind of power. And so um, uh, what I'm what I'm excited about is building tools that take um, you know projects that used to take three people like a substantial chunk of time to do, and you know now that same project can be done uh, more accurately by a single person in quite a bit less time um, and so that that changes uh, our ability to engage with customers we can offer um, you know a whole new range of services that previously we couldn't we can connect with people that, that otherwise we couldn't and, and that's that's really exciting so I've seen like a new business process you know adopted and, and invented based on you know we can do science faster based on we had a careful understanding of the problem and then engineered the right solution. Mm -hmm. um, and then the building more things like that is, is kind of what my team is trying to do uh, on an ongoing basis. You, you don't really get the opportunity of, of like, hey, do you want this entire package? Like, like somebody doesn't hand you a career. They hand you one decision at a time. And sometimes you know, like, well, if I choose A versus B, then I'm likely to get this next opportunity or decision in the future. But you don't always know when that's coming and you don't know when that, what you're going to choose when you get there. Um, what has surprised me for, for, for many years um, uh, is since 2004, um, so, so in the last 15 years, um, every time I, I started out thinking I was going to be very much a theoretical mathematician uh, in academia, and every time somebody gave me the opportunity to choose more theoretical or more applied, um, I have chosen more applied uh, because I got more enjoyment out of doing that work at the time. Um, and and now I'm 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 very very much um, you know my training is as an applied mathematician and I work as a software developer in a very you know wet and squishy field um, and and that's been uh, a gradual transition and and nobody told me like I was signing up for this all at once and so like making those decisions and understanding how your career is a collection of very small decisions. Um, is 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 important. Um, some things that really helped me early on um, were getting the advice of somebody who is not in academia about what a career is and should be, and what what kinds of decisions mean, and like where I should emphasize my time early on. Um, and so I had a I had a mentor like that at Merrimack. Um, I had. Uh, other connections of people who I, I really let influence me over time um, in, in how to think about my career and what I do. Right, and I remember earlier in the interview you were talking about jargon that you can only really get from working in a company, and I guess I'm wondering if you have 
any advice on undergraduates who, who'd like to get that sort of experience? Um, is the answer only to work at an internship or does it also help to follow them online in some sort of way? Um, I would say that the easiest way to learn to do a thing is to go and do the thing. Um, you have a very hard time understanding um, what you might need to know if you're sitting on the outside. Um, uh, beyond that, um, just understanding how the people doing this, practicing this particular field of science or, or, or in the industry, understanding how they think mm -hmm. takes a little while. And, and versus um, how somebody in academia thinks. So in the academic communities, you have kind of the, the, the cycles of, of, of grant grant cycles, you have like, okay, when are the funding agencies expecting this? Like how long is a grant? Um, how long do you have to just sit and think about something? Shifting your mindset from the semesters or years or like huge projects as part of like an R01 or a site grant or something like that, shifting your thinking to I need to make a decision and to deliver something of value in two to four weeks because every day that I delay something um, is a is 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 one to three million dollars off of um, the life of a patent. Um, so if if you come to me and say well, you know, it'll, I, I can, I, I have a pretty good answer right now. Um, but if I take another three months, I can get like the perfect answer, which you might want for a paper. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to say you can't spend three months right now on getting the perfect thing. You, you need to tell me what you have right now. Um, and we just need to like hand two decision makers, um, you know, okay, these are our uncertainties. This is what we currently think. This is what it would cost to get the better answer and really break it down in terms of um, kind of the uh, the things that are important to people in industry. Um, if I'm trying to eliminate an experiment um, from from being done, uh, to to save a, a client money well you know i have to do i have to get them the answer for faster and cheaper than the doing the experiment would anyways um and that's that is a hard shift to make and it takes years to make that shift in thinking it's not something that you can just turn on right right it's just so dramatically different from the, the mindset in academia and the goals you're trying to achieve as well um, so kind of going back to your, um, PhD background, uh, and then even further, what sort of advice would you give an undergraduate who might be interested in this area or who might, um, be interested both in, um, academics and industry, um, 
what would you sort of advise them to think about in terms of science and in terms of career and professional development? So if you're if you're interested in kind of this broader field of computational biology or particularly my field, quantitative systems pharmacology, um, the the biggest advice, like I, I think we've already touched on, is is if you want to do the thing, then do the thing to learn it. Um, so find find a way that you can negotiate with your program in order to get um, time to do an internship. Find a way that you can um, uh, get exposure to the timelines in industry. Um, find a way to understand the kinds of problems that come up in industry, um, which are which are completely different kind of class of problems a lot of times. Um, in industry, for the most part, has has money and no time. Um, and uh, in, in academia, it's 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 frequently I, I have no money, and I have, I have lots of graduate students, so I have plenty of time. Um, <laughs> and that's that's a big shift. Um, what would I suggest? Um, the kind of direction we're going is is going to be kind of an, have an increasing uh, importance on the ability to do complex, like non-routine things with computers. Um, and so that is going to require, uh, you are rarely going to be disappointed you spent time increasing your ability at computing um, or, or, or programming. Um, so if you have nothing, learn to bang together a script that does a little bit of a complicated calculation. If you can do that scripting right now, um, you know, learn how to write kind of a well-composed collection of functions uh, that can be reused. If you can write something that can be reused, learn how to test those to determine like, yes, they are, you know, according to these unit integration and system tests that they're doing the right thing. If you're, if you're writing good tests, like take some time to learn how to architect a larger system. Um, and, and if you can architect a system already and kind of work in biology, then please call me because I probably want to hire you. Um, so the thing that I saw that like inspired me to like look into this more was, was this blog post where somebody looked at like words that are like really associated with nerd and really associated with geek. And so like, what is a geeky word versus a nerdy word? Um, and so, so that project taught me things about pointwise mutual information, and then it taught me things about, you know, uh, message passing and system systems management when you're like having a large distributed system and you're dealing with a stream of data that you have to distribute to workers. So, uh, since then, that hobby project um, turned into some patents on the calculations of joint statistical information, particularly mutual information, as it was applied to bioinformatics. And then um, this stream processing of, of things gave me the background I needed in order to write um, something called a task queuing system um, for you know my, my current software project, which was an absolutely critical component of how the system works right now. Um, and you, uh, so like, try to take time to 
play with engineering or science or something that you're discovering. Uh, and that playfulness is, you're so much more likely to be able to like apply that in interesting ways later on than you might think. So don't be completely focused on like how you're getting to a goal. Like play along the way because you'll pick up useful things. Um, and then lastly, um, uh, find ways to uh, maintain your mental health. Um, uh, I've had some very big problems with mental health throughout uh, throughout the last 15 years uh, in, in science. And a lot of it has kind of coupled with like um, challenges with understanding how to deal with failure or disappointment or a project not working out. Um, some of it has been uh, just on learning how to deal with um, really horrible moments that every that are going to be in everyone's life. Um, I lost a partner to suicide, um, and that is something that affects your entire life. It affects your work, um, and you, everyone who's watching this, everyone who's a Goldwater scholar, is going to endure sadness and depression and tragedy. Um, they're going to endure burnout and working too hard, uh, and they're going to endure failure. Um, and, and how you deal with that is important. Um, I dealt with that for a long time by uh, having a social community uh, as, as a dancer. Um, and so I would, I would, I would go out and, you know, dance multiple nights a week, um, in, in swing dancing, uh, and, and, and other styles and have that community as, as an anchor, figure out kind of how you're going to have, um, people in your life with whom you don't talk about science. You talk about, um, you know, the, the random bit of TV that y'all all follow, um, you know, at, at the, at the lunch table at uh, at Applied Biomath, there's a, a huge group of people that are avid followers of The Bachelor, and they talk about it all the time. And it's it's wonderful. It's how you kind of decompress and have an anchor into something that is not totally a cerebral world of science, and that's really important. Um, if you have access to healthcare and the opportunity to engage with a therapist, I would encourage you to do that early and often. Um, uh, recognize that the things that are hard in your life are hard for a lot of people. And the earlier that you talk with someone about it, um, the better you're likely to do with it. Um, and good luck. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's really easy in science to get really demotivated and to just get burnout and not have a, I think, I think that's something I've heard about PhD students a lot, not having a external sort of support system or something outside of the lab that you just continuously do every week and then try to maintain sanity in that way. Well, the, um, the, the mechanism by which most people end up in uh, their PhD program is, is really challenging and problematic for a lot of things. Like you apply to programs all over the country. So you're not looking for like, where am I close to, to, 
to family or friends. And then you go to that lab, you go to that school, and it might be somewhere you've never been before. You might be uh, 500 miles from the nearest person you know, and you're thrown immediately into something that is this just boiler room of intense work and you have people that have been fighting their entire lives like okay i need to like fight to be here i need to fight to do something a little bit better and it's easy to get sucked up into that not understanding kind of the risks that runs long term and then once you kind of know people in your lab like what are you doing to like meet people outside of that like tiny environment um and and if you don't, um, that's uh, that's really challenging when you know you need to go talk with somebody when you need somebody who is not a scientist to say, "Wow, that really sucks." <laughs> um, I've been there, um, and um, and so the experience of grad school can be incredibly isolating. Um, so if anybody's listening and you know, feels isolated by this. Like, remember that um, other people are feeling this way and that there are resources out there. Taking the initial steps to access them are incredibly challenging, um, but they are worth it. Um, and you will be better for reaching out for help. Sounds like some really helpful good advice for PhDs, Andrew. Thank you. So I think with that, we'll close out the, the show. Um, this has been uh, so incredibly educational and engaging, Andrew. Thank you so much for letting the Goldwater Scholar community interview you for these highlights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Hope it helps. Yes, definitely, definitely. Again, you can listen to our podcast on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, or Spotify. And you can follow the Goldwater Scholar community on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter to receive updates of this show, and you can leave us some feedback. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon with our next guest.